0: This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it, or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. I'm your host, Tammy Zonker. There's been a lot of crystal ball gazing as of late. Many researchers, experts, and thought leaders looking at the economic forecast, looking at giving USA data, research, surveys, and assessing general nonprofit sentiment, trying to predict what 2023 may have in store for the sector, and specifically for charitable giving. I tackled this topic in this month's live training with my Fundraising Transformer community last week. That session was titled Predictions and Preparations for 2023 Fundraising. I say prediction and preparations for an important reason. It's one thing to predict or to anticipate what may likely happen, but those predictions are useless unless we prepare for those likely scenarios. As Abraham Lincoln once said, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Today, I want to share my five predictions informed by many brilliant minds and bodies of research across the sector, and I'll unpack a couple of them, sharing how we may best prepare for what will likely, probably, possibly happen. Now, I liken the work of a fundraising professional a bit like a roller coaster. Some of you love roller coasters. You know, that thrilling anticipation of the roller coaster car slowly climbing to its summit. Your heart racing with excitement with every click, click along the track, the thrill of that speedy plummet, and every unexpected turn and bump along the way. For others, a roller coaster ride is sheer torture. <laughs> we begrudgingly agreed to get on the ride in the first place because someone that we love, a friend, a family member, pleaded for us to go with them. Each click of the slow upward climb does not feel like thrilling anticipation, but rather increasing terror. Two very different experiences. And I suggest that if we anticipate the dynamics of the ride and prepare for the likely turns and bumps, the experience will be monumentally more enjoyable or at the very least tolerable. Your confidence in your fundraising strategy, your plan A, plan B, your what-if scenario roadmap will prepare you and your board to navigate uncertainty from a position of strength and agility. So you can slide into 2024 with a big smile on your face, knowing everything was figure outable because you stayed focused on the predefined critical few factors and the most important needle-moving activities. So what are those predictions? Well, let me tell you. The first prediction is the number of U.S. households giving will continue to shrink. Next, giving through donor advice funds will continue to grow. Retaining quality fundraising staff will be increasingly difficult. Foundations will continue to give an increased percentage of assets, particularly to organizations led by people of color and doing work in equity and inclusion, and trust-based philanthropy adoption will expand. Let's unpack a few of those predictions, starting with the number of U.S. households giving will continue to shrink. According to the most recent AFP Fundraising Effectiveness Project report from Q3 of 2022, we know that the number of donors giving fell 7.1%. And if you break down that decline, Donors who gave less than $500 made up 85% of total donors. 15.4 fewer micro-donors gave. So micro-donors are defined as those giving less than $100. And 7.8% fewer small donors gave. So that's donors who are giving between $101 up to $500. 96%! of the decrease in the number of donors was due to declines in those giving less than $500. Overall, donor retention dropped 3.1%, which is an improvement over 2021. And new donor acquisition fell by almost 25% in 2022, at least up through the third quarter. And it was 19.2% in 2021, just as a point of reference. So, what we're reading, what we're hearing, is that the traditional giving pyramid is becoming more like a giving hourglass. What we're really losing are our middle donors, and frankly, it's at an alarming rate. Giving USA continues to report overall increases in giving year over year, a record breaking 6% increase in gift values in 2020, and a more modest 3% increase in 2021. Adjusted for inflation. And of course, we're anxiously awaiting the report on giving last year. And that's the tricky part. If we just look at dollars given, it can mask big declines in individual household giving year over year. Just like looking exclusively at revenue in our own shops can mask donor retention issues. We have to look at our data, our donor giving trends, through multiple lenses to truly understand what's happening with our donors and their giving. From that position of clear understanding, we can build strategy. So what are the strategies or the preparations that we can take to address these predictions of the continuation of shrinking household giving? Well, the first one, I think, is radical stewardship, right? We talk about stewardship. We talk about what we want to do. But there's a big gap between what we want and intend to do and what actually happens. So I recommend we do those thank you calls to donors within 24 hours of gift receipt. And I'm talking about all donors, not just our major donors, right? We know that we have a higher percentage rate of major donors, donors giving higher gift values because we do give them the love. We thank them. We report impact. It's those middle donors. It's those smaller donors. It's the donors we're leaving behind that we're losing who are not getting that kind of love. And as a result, they're leaving. And it's not that they want all of the acknowledgement. And I hear that over and over again when I do interviews with donors as a part of like fundraising effectiveness projects or maybe campaign feasibility studies. It's not that they want the recognition. It's that they want to know you got the gift. And they want to know that you're going to put it to good use. And later they want to know what was that good use? What difference did it make? Right? So another form of radical stewardship is impact reporting in multiple forms and media. Right? A digital, a link to a digital impact report. Maybe printing a few impact reports for specific donors, maybe of a certain age, who maybe prefer to read things that are actually in their hands. And then exploring new communication channels, right? The rise in texting, the rise in video messaging, in addition to digital and print impact reports or digital and print stories that we're sharing. Another form of radical stewardship is prioritizing retention at every gift level, right? Again, looking at loyal donors, people who've been giving to you for many years, or heck, two years, two years in a row, because we all know first-time donor retention is an abysmal 20%. It costs five times more to acquire a new donor than to retain a current donor. We must prioritize retention at every single gift level. We not just our major gift donors, and we absolutely have to honor, again, long-time donors. So also investing in recurring giving programs, which have a significantly higher donor retention rate, right? So your monthly giving club, your leadership giving circles or sustainer circles. Maybe you have affinity groups like women in philanthropy or alumni groups. And then I just want to emphasize prioritizing loyalty and loyal donors at every gift level. And again, I know you may not have the resources to thank every donor within 24 hours, to generate all of these impact reports. And this is where the role of, well, number one, volunteers. Your board members making some of those calls, your development or advancement committee, heck, even just creating a special ad hoc team gratitude to help make these calls, to send handwritten notes to share the love, can be a big breakthrough. But here's the other thing. You need to invest in donor retention. You do. And you can calculate a return on that investment. If you increase donor retention by 5%, by 10%, like do the math, what's your median gift value? If you extrapolate the increase in donor giving multiplied by the median gift value or gift values by specific segments, you can clearly create a return on investment. Like every dollar we put into donor retention through dedicated staffing yields a $5 return. So, it's not just a volunteer solution, it's also a declaration, a show of commitment to philanthropy, to a culture of philanthropy by investing in donor retention and donor stewardship, right? This is why universities, who are fundraising machines, right? They raise millions and millions of dollars every year. They have dedicated donor relations professionals right? To love on donors, to check in with them, to send impact reports, to give updates because there is a return on the investment. Okay, we have a lot to learn from those who invest in donor retention, in donor relationship and stewardship. Another way to really express radical stewardship is to reimagine the criteria to be assigned to a development officer's portfolio. Now, especially as we look at diversifying our portfolios as expanding and being more inclusive to creating more belonging to communities that maybe have not been well-represented in our donor files. So what if instead of it just being a gift threshold value that gets someone assigned to a major gift officer or a donor relations officer gift portfolio, maybe we take some of our supporters of color and assign them to a donor relations professional, regardless of their past giving thresholds, right? What if we look at some young professionals who maybe are part of your monthly giving program, who maybe they don't, even collectively, adding up 12 months of reoccurring giving, they don't come close to meeting that gift threshold, but we want to grow the next generation of philanthropists. We want input. We want those young professionals Knowing that they are appreciated, that we have a space where they belong. And what we'll see as a result of that inevitably is them opening up their circle of influence and inviting more people to learn about your organization. Longtime supporters giving below the major gift threshold, assign some of them to donor relation portfolios. Again, younger supporters, people of color, loyal supporters. Look at the multiple constituents that you have and expand. How you engage them through dedicated, focused stewardship and engagement. Now, this idea of including supporters of color, regardless of gift history, is not my idea. It actually came from an interview I did here on the Intentional Fundraiser podcast with Dr. Tyrone McKinley. He is a brilliant researcher and professor at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. He also is the author of the book on Madam C.J. Walker and her gospel of giving. So just a brilliant expert in philanthropy and certainly philanthropy within communities of color. And he suggested that this approach, this strategy is a way of, again, diversifying your donor portfolio to include more people of color, to invite unique perspectives and lived experiences from people of color to being a more inclusive organization where many, a wide variety of people with their unique journeys and gifts and talents and circle of influence and support feels a place where they can belong. The second prediction, giving through donor advised funds will continue to grow. Right now, there are three basic categories of donor advised funds, right? There are national donor advised funds like Fidelity Charitable, Vanguard, Those National Donor Advice Fund fiduciaries make up about 60-61% of all donor advice funds. The second category of donor advice funds are the Community Foundation Donor Advice Funds, and that makes up about 26% of donor advice funds here in the U.S. And then there are single-issue donor advice funds. So maybe that's the Jewish National Fund or the Nature Conservancy Fund. But here's what we know, regardless of the category of donor-advised funds. In 2022, donor-advised fund assets were estimated at over $235 billion, and that is about a 40% increase over the value of DAFs in 2020. So that is continuing year over year to grow significantly, and we need to tap into that. Grants from donor-advised funds to qualified charities totaled an estimated $46 billion, representing a 28% increase compared to 2020, which itself was a 28% increase over 2019. So it is just leapfrogging year over year. And interestingly enough, the average donor-advised fund annual payout rate is above 20%. Right? It's almost 24% as of 2020. Now, where do those donor-advised fund grants go? Well, on average, between 2014 and 2018, which was the most recent data I have, it was a special report done by Giving USA, And if you're a subscriber, you can go download that report. But between 2014 and 2018, on average, about 29% of those donor-advised fund grants went to education. 14% to religion, 13% to public society benefit, which again, public social justice is under that umbrella, 12% to human services. And the breakdown continues. But why does 29%, why does the vast majority or the biggest slice of those donor advice fund grants, why do they go to education? Well, certainly people with high net worth who likely have a donor advice fund, they are Often have an affinity for education and arts. And arts, by the way, was a 9% payout. But the truth is, 29% went to education, I think, because higher education organizations ask. Because they spend time with their donors. They know their donors. They have stewardship officers, relationship personnel. They have relationship staff who know their donors. And they have gift officers who ask. They ask we should all get better about understanding our donors, understanding if they do have donor advice funds in which they could designate giving, and asking for donor advice fund gifts. So how do we best prepare to maximize giving through donor advice funds above and beyond asking? Well, in order to ask, we need to identify DAF donors already in our database, right? So have we received gifts through donor advice funds, whether it's the Community Foundation or Vanguard? So we would have recognized the fiduciary, the Community Foundation, the Vanguard, the Fidelity. We would have soft credited the donor. So are we looking for that cross-reference so we can actually engage the donor and build that direct relationship? We can now explore utilizing a donor advised fund prospect research service thanks to Helen Brown Group and their new offering called DEFINITIVE, and we'll include a link to that site in the show notes so you can check it out. We can build relationships with charitable advisors. And again, we should be looking at our gift acknowledgement protocols. Of course, when we receive a donor advised fund grant, we send a thank you letter to the fiduciary. We may send a handwritten note or a thank you call to them as well. But how about sending that handwritten note sending that thank you letter or making that thank you phone call or setting up visits with the donor advice fund donor as well, unless, of course, they request no contact. We should send stewardship reports to both the fiduciary and the donor, again, if that's acceptable, if those are welcomed from the donor. We know that those are welcomed from the fiduciaries. And we should really look at our organization and ask ourselves, are we DAF friendly? Right? Do we do educational programs with DAF fiduciaries? Do we talk to them about what we do and why it matters so that they can help guide those grants as they talk with their DAF donors? Is it possible to do some co marketing opportunities with them? Possibly, is there messaging about how to donate through your donor advice fund on your website? You could add a checkbox give through my donor advice fund on your appeals, on your pledge cards and in your gift agreements. And of course, we wanna ensure that staff and board are comfortable talking about donor advice funds. So we need to prepare to be more donor advice fund friendly, to be more welcoming, right? And to make those connections through relationship building. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's Executive Director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang. We love Bloomerang because it's so, like, it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang. Year over year, we have raised more funds, so obviously, I think Bloomerang's been a, a huge part of that. By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com/intentional or click the link in the show notes. My third prediction, attracting and retaining quality fundraising staff will be challenging, or I should say continue to be challenging. So here are some U.S. development staff statistics. There are about 200,000 fundraising professionals, people who identify as fundraising directors, fundraising managers, and coordinators, and public relations. Now, most of the U.S. fundraising professionals self-identify as Caucasian women, who hold a bachelor's degree or higher. Fundraisers are paid on average an annual salary of about $85,000, a median salary of $75,000. Now, again, AFP, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, does an annual salary survey that they publish. So if you're an AFP member, as a benefit of your membership, you can go out to that website and download that great study. And it not only talks about salaries and compensation packages by sector, right? Are you in human services? Are you in higher ed? Are you in the arts? Are you in social justice? But it looks at where in the country are you? What is the level of education you possess? What are the number of years in which you've been working in the profession? So it looks at multiple factors to help identify what the pay range currently is and what it should be. We have to be competitive to attract top talent, right? And here's the thing, the field is estimated to grow at a 15% rate year over year. So not only are we struggling now to attract and retain great fundraising talent, the demand is growing. And the rate in which people are joining the profession is lagging significantly behind the demand. There are an estimated 1.5 million U.S. registered nonprofit organizations, and there are not enough fundraising professionals to go around. Now, here's the thing I will say. Again, AFP is really dedicated to expanding and growing the profession, not only in terms of expertise and skill level, But how do we attract new people to the profession? For most of us, when we talk to fundraising professionals, we hear how they fell into the profession. Well, how do we have people choose the profession? How do we have them go to school for the profession? I did a wonderful interview. Birgit Burton is the AFP Global Chair of the Board. And she was just brilliant. She was on the podcast a couple of months ago. If you go back into the shows, at the tensional fundraiser, you can listen to that interview, and she talks about how they are really dedicating resource and focus to attract people to the profession, to keep them in the profession. Again, because the stats about people wanting to leave and their frustration are really overwhelming, and I'm going to share some of those in a moment. Also, we did an interview which has not yet been published with Ian Adair. Now, you may know Ian; he speaks at a lot of conferences about mental health and specifically mental health in the nonprofit sector, but he just took on a new position with AFP Global as the Director of Professional Development and Credentialing. And a big part of his focus is also on expanding and retaining people in the profession of fundraising. So good things to come, I have no doubt, but in the meanwhile, we have some pain points. So let's talk about those. There was a survey that I read that really points out how fundraisers are not happy. You may not be happy. Here's what fundraisers are saying about their jobs and the sector. 91% of the fundraisers that were surveyed want to spend more time with their donors, right? We're bogged down with internal meetings, administration, and so on. 92% say vacant positions are stressing their workload, right? These open positions, like those positions, that work is just being spread across the department. And you might be a department of one. And even if you are a larger shop, it's just a larger workload when you have multiple vacancies. 94% of fundraisers report feeling stressed and unappreciated. 48% say they're likely to leave their position in the next two years. Right? So it could get worse before it gets better. 28% said they are likely to leave the profession altogether. And 82% say development roles are unappreciated and undervalued across the board. And 89% say they don't have enough people on their team to achieve their goals. They're frustrated, they're burned out, they're disillusioned, and they don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. So, how do we attract and retain fundraisers? Now, I talked about what AFP Global is doing, and that's fantastic, but there are things that we can do right now in our own shops. To make a difference so one of them is to embody to really embrace and apply idea principles right inclusion diversity equity and access principles and practices to include salary ranges on job postings and that's a big kind of scary move for a lot of organizations to put their toe in that water or better yet to jump in but here's the thing this is one of the practices that does promote inclusiveness, that makes certain that we aren't discriminating or having bias against applicants of color, right? Here's the job salary range before you even apply. So it does a couple of things, like we have no idea of this person's attributes, their diversity, et cetera. It also helps weed out people who are expecting a much higher salary before you go through. Multiple interviews and waste your precious time and theirs talking about a position that they couldn't possibly accept because of their salary requirements, right? So, many other benefits to that, but I highly recommend it. And if you are trying to post your positions with AFP Global and many AFP chapters, AFP Global is definitely requiring that we include salary ranges. It's mandatory to even post the position. We had a mass exodus with a great resignation, where talent left. Our fundraisers left. Now, a year later, two years later, what we're finding is some of those fundraising professionals are understanding that the grass wasn't necessarily greener on the other side. Many of us have begun to expand and be more welcoming, to increase our salary levels to the degree that we have been able. And star talent wants to come back. So we need to open up that conversation to reach out perhaps to former star talent and say, listen, we have a position. It's a step up from where you were when you were with us, and we think you'd be incredible. We would invite you to apply for that position, right? So welcome former star talent back, recruit them back, entice them back, and make certain that you've created a culture and an environment that they want to come back to, right, that they want. To stay with. Certainly, having a flexible work environment and work schedule does attract talent. So, whether that's work from home or a hybrid model or four day work weeks, we have to change. My parents raised me like, you're lucky to have a job. Like, you just need to work hard. You need to put in the hours. And while we, yes, we do need to work hard. And yes, we do need to meet our goals, exceed our goals, to have a voice in what those goals are. The newest generation, the new workforce, the present reality is that we need to co create these positions. We need to co create what our culture looks like and how we work if we are to attract and retain this new generation of talent. And we need them. So we have to be more open and more creative, right? And more collaborative. Otherwise, we are going to struggle. We need to create a caring, purpose driven culture. We need to build trust with our team and individuals on our team, within our area, and across our entire organization. We need to include development staffing in decision-making, right? Of Setting their goals, strategies. It's sometimes when they feel like they're at the cause of our strategic planning, and they didn't have a voice in it, they don't understand how goals were arrived at, that they feel excluded, that trust is eroded. We need to develop staff with ongoing professional and personal development and create leadership opportunities and experiences for them and maximize the power of recognition. The survey said fundraisers feel underappreciated, undervalued, and so we need to recognize them. We need to cultivate and steward, in many ways, our staff with as much intention as we cultivate and steward our donors, our volunteers right to really maximize that power of recognition and just like our donors our staff don't want recognition just in one size fits all some love public recognition within the team or within maybe the agency at an all staff meeting some much prefer private recognition just a job well done at their one-on-one check-in meetings we need to explore the emerging trend of menu style compensation and incentive packages Some people value salary above all else. Some want more PTO. For some, benefits don't matter as much because maybe they have a spouse who covers health insurance, right? So looking at, yes, equity, but looking at options where they can pick what works for them. Again, you can't have everything like I want the top salary and I want five weeks of vacation. Doesn't work that way, unfortunately. But having a menu style of compensation and incentive packages that have equal value collectively is something that we could explore. And of course, there is an emerging trend. There are conversations nationwide about the possibility of nonprofit organizations unionizing. And so we need to keep up to date on that and to understand how that could impact our organization. Now, I don't have an opinion One way or the other, I have not read enough yet. I don't understand it enough yet to have an opinion, but I know I need to keep an eye on it and keep reading. And I hope you do too. Now, let's just combine the fourth and fifth predictions together because it's really all about foundations. I said that foundations will continue to give an increased percentage of assets, particularly to organizations led by people of color. And that's just based on reading many articles In the Stanford Social Innovation Review, in the Chronicle of Philanthropy, so many great publications, and I haven't named them all. But again, foundations are saying that we need to invest in organizations led by people of color, people who have a lived experience that will strengthen, that it's more connected, more related, with a deeper understanding of many of the communities that we serve. The fifth prediction. Trust based philanthropy adoption will continue to expand. So, I want to talk about that, both of those together. In 2019, if you look at the Giving USA data, foundations gave just over $75 billion to nonprofit organizations. In 2020, that grew to $88.5 billion to organizations. And certainly, a lot of that was due to the pandemic. That's a big dollar increase year over year and a lot of it was due to the pandemic and wanting to help organizations meet basic needs and expand support also that was the year of the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and so investments in social justice also rose significantly so foundations really committed to giving a bigger percentage of their assets and in 2021 which is the most recent data that we have so far is that increased again from 88 billion to $90 billion. So a more modest increase, but a significant dollar value as well. Now we all know that foundations give from assets. And just like our own investments, many foundation investments have also decreased in value in the past year or so. But even so, an increasing number of foundations have said, we're going to give a higher percentage of assets. And a growing interest in investing in organizations led by executives of color is emerging. Likewise, investments in social justice and other pressing issues of our times is expected. And one of those is also environmental, right? Climate change, international relief with the earthquake in Syria, with the war on Ukraine. Gosh, the list goes on and on. So trust-based philanthropy. Again, I'm predicting that will continue to expand. There are a number of individual donors and private family foundations, and even larger foundations, national foundations, who are more and more embracing trust-based philanthropy. So what is that? I think if there's a poster child for trust-based philanthropy, it's probably McKinsey Scott, right? She gives multi-year unrestricted operating support. They do their own upfront homework. There's a more simplified application process for foundations who are embracing trust-based philanthropy. So, it's easier to apply. The reporting is less complex. It's more of a partnership versus power dynamic where the foundation has all the power and we, the fundraising organization, the nonprofit, is humble pie, won't you please? Not begging, but jumping through a lot of hoops and meeting a lot of criteria, checking a lot of boxes to even qualify for a grant. So, trust based philanthropy is more of a Equal partnership, it's transparent, there's a responsiveness from both sides, and it can often include support beyond the check, right? So, how do we attract trust based philanthropy? Well, it starts with building strong relationships with foundation staff and with the board of those foundations where we can. And often to build those relationships, we need to really maximize peer to peer engagement, right? Who on our board, has a relationship with the XYZ Foundation board members. We need to inquire to start conversations about their perspective on trust-based philanthropy. We need to be an organization that's transparent, right, where we're posting our 990s, where we're talking about what we're accomplishing and where we're having setbacks, transparency, the good and the aspirational, and where we you know what the gap is between those two. We need to be clear on our mission, our vision. What are we up to in this world? What change are we aiming to create? And how are we going to get there? What is our theory of change? We need to consistently report impact. And what are our reporting practices? Who do we report this impact to? In what cadence? Because it, again, isn't one size fits all. And we need to have demonstrated good governance and fiduciary management from our board and our executive leadership, right? And that includes 100% board giving. So, these are some of the ways that we can attract individual donors, foundation support, corporate support. These are the ways that we can prepare for the likely future. These are my top five fundraising predictions and preparation for 2023 success. I hope you found this helpful. All right, my friends, that's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraising Podcast. Keep on looking to the future. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. See you next time. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional, or click the link in the show notes. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransformed.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of 27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com slash growth. Talk soon.